Would you read along with me, please, once you've gotten there? Picking it up in verse 1. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods, and which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, or the gods of the people which are around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, well, you shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him. You shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies. He sought to entice you away from the Lord your God, again, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all of Israel shall hear and fear and not again do such wickedness as this among you. If you hear someone in one of your cities in which the Lord your God gives you to dwell in, saying, Corrupt men have gone out from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their cities, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which you have not known. Well, then you shall inquire, search out and ask diligently. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination is committed among you, then you shall surely strike the inhabitants of the city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it. All that is in it, its livestock with the edge of the sword, and you shall gather all its plunder in the middle of the street and completely burn with fire the city and all its plunder. For the Lord your God shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. So none of the accursed things shall remain in your hand. That the Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you and multiply you just as he swore to your fathers. Because you have listened to the voice of the Lord your God to keep all his commandments, which I command you today to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord your God. You pray with me, please. Lord, we need you to speak. We have gathered here together because we are expectant, knowing that when your word is open, truly you do speak. And Lord, you've told us to not believe anything just in and of itself on face value, but to test all things. 
You've told us your word is the tried and true weight for which all other information is to be weighed. We confess to you, we get such goofy, wonky, wrong information from so many sources, many of which even mean well. But in the truth be told, it's still harmless, harmful, helpless. We remain sitting under the counsel of things that are in opposition to you, where you tell us there is no wisdom nor counsel against you. And so, Lord, I pray today, as your word is active, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, can even discern the intent thoughts of our heart, Lord, then cut what needs to be cut today. As your word, Lord, you speak like snow that falls to the ground and does not water up or does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats. And you promise in the same way your word never returns empty. Well, Lord, as you send it forth today, bring everything you wish to do with it right now. And give us a seriousness. The seriousness that we need to receive this. For Lord, truly, we can hear this information and not listen and be unchanged. Or be transformed here today. And the difference will be what we choose to do. To listen with our hearts or with our ears. And Lord, we don't want seed to fall on the wayside here today. But to be deeply planted, inculcated in our being. So Lord, have your way now. Please step in. Immerse me in your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would appear. Come upon me in such a way, Lord, that you would use me well beyond my humanity. And that you would speak to every one of us right where we need to hear you today. That we could say that God spoke to me personally today. You know exactly what needs to be said, so say it. And I just want to get out of your way. So take your heart and bury me deep in it. And then take my lips and place them on your heart and speak. Overcome me, Lord, that we all could be overcome with your truth. Jesus, save, transform, correct, rebuke, equip, challenge, encourage, strengthen. Do all those things you promised that your word would do. Have your way now, we pray. Redeem every second, every second. And may we have so much fun on the surgeon's table now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. It was a really sad story. I remember as a kid, very few situations where God was mentioned by any name. But I remember this story because it was near my neighborhood. There was a hospital near us. And there was a man who had been in a terrible accident. And though he had been in a terrible accident, he was in a serious need of blood. 
part of his family had donated. The blood type matched. And he was one of those people at that point, while receiving the transfusion, life was starting to enter back into him. He was actually in a very crucial, critical state. But his mother, his mother was one of those cults that strongly believed against transfusion, came in dressed as a nurse, and pulled the plug. I remember the story really well because of two reasons. One is the boy died on my birthday. And the second is he was the kid who sat next to me in maths class. We used to joke about things a lot. And I remember how weird that seemed to me. That God would want to kill him like that. Of course, that isn't the case. But the idea was simple. He was in such a crucial state, though buried under a bubble, people could come to visit him and come and pray, which made little sense to me at the time. It makes perfect sense to me now. And I remember being able to even go in and visit him. Even though we might be dirty and even though we might have had germs, he was covered, he was protected, he was safe. As long as that blood was coming into him, he was alive. The moment that that blood was removed, he was a dead man. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ is your transfusion. And it is your life. And if you want to cut yourself from that, everything dies. There is so much convolution to Christianity. They should never be there. And the arguments from the world, how can a person that seems to live a relatively good life not go to heaven, but a person that seems to accept Jesus but live a relatively rotten life still get to heaven? And you know what's missing from that question is the relationship. We've had one child, as you're aware of, biologically and one by adoption. When we adopted the girl, we didn't expect her to be perfect. We didn't expect that of the biological. In fact, we, the only difference is we kind of assumed the kind of tweaks that our biological child would have. We just looked at each other and went, uh-oh. The adopted, we were unaware. But she's ours. She said yes to us, and, and we said yes to her, and she's ours. Just being nasty or human or faulty or sinful isn't going to keep her from being our daughter. It strains the relationship, but it doesn't destroy it. In this chapter, God wants to make clear something that should be, to be honest, crystalline to us, but isn't. And you've heard me say it before, but it never, I mean, it's just so clear here. Nothing could be more important to God than your relationship with him. All the things that we bring before God like mountains, while we really omit any care to the most important. As Jesus would say, you strain a gnat but swallow a camel. This chapter is relatively tidy. 
The first six verses, if you will, are about perilous prophets. Verses are 1 to 5. 6 to 11 then are your family and friends package. And then 12 to 18 about unsafe cities. But in all three of the cases, the theme is the same. Does it look drastic? Of course it looks drastic because nothing could be more important. It would be the same thing as God saying, how far will you go to keep that transfusion in that boy? How far will you go to make sure that life still stays life? Or somehow are we assuming that other things are just as important, but not to God? Could there be anything that God actually talks about cutting off your hands and plucking out your eyes for? But your relationship with Him. Interesting for what it's worth. I am. When you look from this point prior the greatest destruction of God's people. We're not talking about the greatest mass where we look at the flood, for instance, in in Genesis 6, but the greatest destruction of God's people was not because they complained about food or water. Was not in any of the battles they fought, like Sihon or Og, which, by the way, they were giants. The guy had this giant bed, and assumedly because he was a giant guy to fit in the giant bed. (coughs) I know the problem of trying to sit in a small bed and trying to sleep in it. But when they turned from the living God, when Beor and Belach and Belachim, there 24,000 people died. The greatest death. Let me give you kind of a hint of what that looks like. I mean, I kind of looked that up a little bit and I kind of got the idea that's the amount of people that get struck by lightning and killed a year. I don't know how that works, but uh, it's the amount of people who die in this country from diabetes in a year. I thought that was interesting. But it is also the average amount of people at Waterloo Station, the busiest station in all of England. Imagine walking into Waterloo Station any time other than peak hours, and every person's dead. Every train that's there at the stop, every person at a platform, every person working behind the kiosks, everyone waiting for a train, everyone on their way to a train, everyone staring at that giant marquee of all of the different trains, every one of them dead, 24,000 people. Because they pulled the plug. In this chapter, there are going to be three different things that we see that are going to be really a challenge to us in regards to this. And the question for me and for you is, how far will you go? What will you put in front of this? How far will you go to actually convolute what God made simple? To pollute what God made pure. So read with me, if you would, please. Verse 1 says, If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder comes to pass, in which he spoke to you, saying, Well, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You find it interesting in this, by the way, this is the third time the word prophet will be mentioned. First will be with Abraham in Genesis 20. Second will be with Aaron in Exodus 7, and then here. But did you notice it says, rises among you? This isn't a traveling kind of guy with his big Armani coat waving and people are falling over and flopping like fish. This is somebody we knew. This is somebody among the church that rises up and says he's a prophet. By the way, the same thing that John would speak about in 1 John chapter 2, 
verses 18 through 20, when he says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming? I tell you, many Antichrists have come. They went out from us, but did not return to us because they absolutely were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have returned, but they're leaving a show that they were never really of us in the first place. But there's a couple things to note beside that. One is clearly false prophets can do miracles. Do you notice it says here, if a person arises, God calls him a false prophet, and yet he does a sign or a wonder and it comes to pass. Which tells me that the miracle cannot certainly validate an individual. That's the danger, and therefore I must be all the more diligent and attentive to where the focus or attention is being placed and to whom or for what they're recruiting. I get why then, in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 7, when Peter and John, after seeing a man born lame, raised him in chapter 3, and they bring him before the council, and they ask, by what power or what name was this man made well? For which, of course, Peter and John would say, if you really want to know by what name this man, a helpless man, has been raised, we'll let, you, let it be known by the name of Jesus Christ, whom, by the way, you crucified. I don't think they had a problem. He calls it the stone that the builders rejected. It has become the chief cornerstone. And then he says, there's no salvation in the other. For there is, hear me on this, there is no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus is in the category all his own. You can't have a Jesus plus and be a real Jesus freak. If you're going to be a Christian, Jesus demands to be unique. It's interesting because Jesus told us in Matthew 24, 24 that false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, even if possible, the elect. Mark says the same thing in Mark 13, 22. Jesus tells us in John 4, 48 that unless you, speaking to the Jewish population, there see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Two chapters later in John 6, 2, he'll tell us that a great multitude, because Jesus had done these signs that he performed on the disease, followed him. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.22 that Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. Stop. Don't miss this. There's really only two kinds of people in the world. There's the religious and the not religious. If we could put it into that. People that have somehow been raised in some form of spiritual environment, whatever that looks like. So whether that means you've got a harmonium in your house and you're squeezing something and chanting, or whether that means you were raised listening to Billy Graham and whoever else. The bottom line in all of that is you were still raised with some form of standard that you kind of equated with God, or there was kind of no God in essence, but maybe just fight for yourself. And he says there's two kinds of people. There's going to be those who were raised within that spiritual environment, and that spiritual environment, they're going to be looking for experience. They're going to be looking for something that they go, wow, that was, whoa, wow. And then he says, and then there are going to be those who weren't, and what they're looking for is to understand. They're looking for logic in all of this. They're looking for a good argument. But you know what Paul says? And it is fundamental, church. It is fundamental. He says, the gospel's neither. So don't try to play it that way, because if you're going to try to play them on their field, their way, you can't bring the gospel and do it. It isn't going to be about your dog and pony show, smoke and mirrors. And it's not going to be about how you can argue somebody into the kingdom with all of your great books and your dusty this and your little things and, and your you know infallible arguments. In the end of it all, all of that stuff makes it so that most people don't share Jesus at all because they don't feel like they're equipped to argue like that. And yet what he told us is the gospel of Jesus is the power of salvation to anyone who would believe. Though 
it's what makes the person seeking experience trip. And it makes the person who's looking for a logic think it's stupid. People get saved. And then they can't say, well, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know. It wasn't like I just had an experience and I had to do it. And it wasn't like it, it was just like all of a sudden it just went, yeah, okay, that's for real. I need to do that. But Jesus warned us. Paul warned us. The gospel is going to be neither. So stop playing it that way. Present the gospel simply and plainly and let God do what he, what he does best. Save people. And by the way, with that, you should be, all be, be able to do that if you've said yes to him. When we look at the end times, by the way, he does make clear that the coming of the lawless one, that's the Antichrist, Second Thessalonians 2.9, will be according, listen to this, to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. With all power. Do you get that? That guy's going to do some amazing things. As a matter of fact, it tells us in Revelation 13.13 that he performs such great signs that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by these signs. It tells us in Revelation 16 that demons come out performing signs, which go out, by the way, and gather the kings of the earth for that great battle we know, the Battle of Armageddon. By Revelation 19, it tells us, by the way, that that beast, that Antichrist, was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked many signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. Listen, you need to know, those that actually are just starving for some form of miracle and saying, whatever that miracle is good enough, I'll follow that guy, they're completely standing against Scripture. And they're setting themselves up to follow the Antichrist, not Christ. And he says, listen, if a prophet rises up from among you and he does all of these really fancy things and in doing all of these fancy things, then he says, go after other gods. He says, don't you dare follow him. Which tells me that I'm not looking at the miracle. I'm listening to the message. That's the point. Verse 3 says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. The word test there, would you say is nasa? Would you say nasa? Nasa means to prove. And the idea is quite simple. The idea of a person that is so deluded that they need to get out there and actually get worked. That tough guy that actually has always been able to just make nobody fight him because they were just intense enough that everyone backed down. And then finally someone pushed them on it and they realized they weren't tough at all. They were all mouth. The person that can brag about whatever the thing is that they think they can do until they're actually put to test. That's this word. The other idea of God testing to discover, by the way, is not because God doesn't know. The problem is we don't. And let me tell you why. Because Jeremiah 17.9, listen to this. The heart is deceitful above all things. Wait a minute. How deceitful is your heart or the heart? It's deceitful above what? All things. Do you get all? Do you know what that means? It's deceitful above Satan. Do you realize your heart's more deceitful than Satan? Have a nice day. So when we listen to the songs, you've got to follow your heart. What? Not according to Scripture. Desperately wicked. Who can know it? Ephesians 4.22 tells us that man, the old man grows increasingly corrupt according to deceitful lusts. Hebrews 3.13 tells us that we can be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I'm putting that together for you. Listen. I could be so convinced that I'm right when I'm not. 
I could be so confident I'm in the right place when I'm not. Because my heart can deceive me. Because lust can deceive me. Because sin can deceive me. And I could be so deceived at that point that I've bought the farm and I don't even realize it. The question is, what do I need to test? What is the thing that I think that I'm doing or think that I am when I'm not? According to verse 3, notice what it says. To test you whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And I've got to be honest with you. This is the rough part for me. Because I know what it's like to be confident that I do when I'm not. I know what it's like to kind of look and go, oh, God. But then didn't Peter do that when he said, I'm willing to die for you, Lord? And Jesus is like, man, I don't doubt your sincerity. Man, you are not for real. There's no depth to that conviction. It's all emotion. And though that emotion seems so true and everything seems so, and oh, I just know this is it. This is it. This is it. Because your heart's deceived you and sin has deceived you and a lust has deceived you. And in all of that, you're like, I'm so confident. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. Just because you're sincere does not mean you're sincerely right. Just because you're confident does not mean your confidence is wise. People were confident in the Titanic. It didn't go real well for them either. I've got to be honest. I sit here and I look at this and I think, now wait a minute, wait a minute. What God's asking, he's not saying, I want to test you to see whether your doctrine's solid. I want, to, I want to test you because what I really want to see is whether you're really being completely faithful in the ministry. Whether you're really reading a lot and praying a lot and, and sharing a lot and attending church a lot. So I, just, I just want you to realize how deceived you could be in thinking you love me when you don't. I'm like, oh man, that really hurts. But it's true. And see, understand, that's what God wants. Buddha's never asked for your love. Muhammad's never asked for your love. None of these other guys have ever asked for your love. They've asked for your money. They've asked for your stuff. They've asked for your uh, obeisance. But they've not asked for your love because they wouldn't even know what to do with it if they had it. And then there's the real God who demands to stand alone. Not him and other things. Just him. He says, look it. Isn't this what he said when he said, listen, listen, listen. Israel, Deuteronomy 6, I'm one. I'm not a lot of things here that you can make up. I'm not the buffet line. I'm one, and I want your love. I think, have I ever really loved him like this? I mean, sincerely, have I ever really loved him like this? Just with two things here, not even the four that he gave us all the way, the three that he gave us in Deuteronomy 6 or the four that he'll give us when we get to the Gospels. The, the three comes to two here, and it's just this. With all of your heart and with all of your soul. My heart is where, in the idea of it, Lvov, the insights, it's where my emotions are. And I think, have I ever really loved God with all my emotions? Or have I let my emotions run so crazy and then I've allowed my emotions to validate? You know what that means, right? When you're guided by your feelings. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus takes the role of the head on the body of Christ. We're familiar with that, right? From Ephesians chapter 5. And I think about this because I think the average person, if, you, if they're all functioning, how many senses do you have on your body? Five. What are they? Smell. I don't know why smell came first. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what else? Smell. Sight. Touch. Taste. Hearing. That's five, right? 
How many of those are found on your face? All of them. Can you hear from your face? Can you feel touch from your face? Can you taste from your face? Can you smell from your face? Can you see from your face? Did I get a mic? Yeah, there we go. That's where Christ is. He's the head of the body. Rip off the head. How many senses do you have left? Just your sense of feeling. You realize you remove Christ from the Christian or from the church, they will be led by their feelings because it's the only thing they have left. You won't see. You won't hear. You won't even taste and see that the Lord is good. All you'll get at that point is your feelings. And when you're led by your feelings, you are sure to fall. Hey, look, at, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to say, hey, this is your problem. I'm telling you, this is my problem. Because I'm not the kind of person that my blood runs cold. I know what it's like to have this fire inside of me. And God goes, I want all of that. And I'm like, but shouldn't I be giving some to my wife and kids? And he goes, look, I want all of that. And when you give it all to me, I'm going to take that and then filter it properly and use it properly to your family and to your church and to the world around you. But if you don't give me all of that, you're going to be so frustrated. Let me ask you, are you confident today? Are you sure today? That you really love the Lord with all your emotions. All your heart. Or just the part that, you know, well, we're a little bit more careful in this culture. That doesn't mean your fire doesn't run inside of you. And some of you, I know that because I can get near you and get scorched on a, on a good day. But then there's the other one. Soul and soul is your appetites. That's where the, the appetites are birthed. And I ask, have I ever really loved God with all my appetites? I mean, I know that every appetite I have, God's given me. The appetite for importance, the appetite for purpose, the appetite to achieve, the appetite for fellowship, the appetite for intimacy. They're all things God has given me that should be handed to Him to be fulfilled so that instead of going to somebody else to suck off of them what they cannot give me, I actually have to go to the Lord where I could get it completely overflowing and then I can love you in the overflow. And that's how the relationship ensues then. I'm not coming at you in a state of need. I need to be important. Meet me to become so I can feel important. I need to feel intimate. Come on, let's make sure we're intimate. I need to make sure that I have purpose. Come on, give me purpose. Do you know how dangerous that is? But we do it all the time. Because we're like starving and we're looking at each other like the next meal. God says, but I want to be loved with all of that. I want to be loved with all of that hunger inside of you. I wonder why he tells us that if you were thirsty and you came to this well, Jesus speaking of himself, and you, and you really believed, you didn't just come to the well, you have to come to the well and trust. I understand that. I've been to places in third world countries where you know there's a pit and there's water down there and you've got to trust, am I going to drink that or not? It's clearly water. It's clearly down there. Clearly, if we could pull it up, the question is, do I trust it enough to drink it? Or will I die of jardia in some of those places? You really want that. Well, actually, where in the world would you want that? Because if you come in thirsty, that's okay. And if you come starving, that's okay. And if you come weary, that's okay. And if you come exhausted, that's okay. That the problem isn't how you come. The question is, are you willing to come to the table and feast? Because I'm preparing a feast for you, even in the presence of your enemies. I'm preparing a feast. What are you going to do with that? Now look at that and he thinks, you know, this whole idea of this guy standing up, it's going to sound good. And that's exactly what he tells us in the last times, is that, we'll actually literally barf up or heave up false teachers that will tickle our ears. 
It's the things that we actually, what our flesh wants, they'll say, it'll all be about us. And how we can actually make, have no responsibility to our own life and not be responsible for any of our choices or any of that. And instead, I'm just going to sit here and do nothing and let the world pass me by when God's called you to amazing, amazing, amazing excellence that transcends humanity because you're His. You're a tool in the belt of the creator of the universe. Have you thought that through? Please hear me in this. God's like, you could really think you do love me like this? And there are going to be a couple of things that are really going to test it. And the first is quite simple. What, what are you doing with the guy that tells you what you want to hear, but you know it's not what I say, says the Lord? Do you listen? Do you give him audience? Or do you kick him out of your life? Notice it doesn't just say, don't really listen, or, you know, as some would say, you know, chew the meat and spit out the bones. This isn't chewing the meat and spit out the bones. A false prophet is a person who's feeding you poison. It's like, sure, chew out the good part and spit out the poison. It doesn't work that way. And understand, the first thing the Lord's saying is, look, at this is because I love you. This is because I want you. And it is so important to me that the nothing is more important to me than my relationship. Jesus didn't die for us on the cross so we could have a mediocre, somehow get me out of hell kind of thing. Jesus didn't hang naked and get tortured to death. And the Father didn't watch that so that somehow we could say, oh, well, cool, I'm not going to hell. That's a radical way to purchase us, for us to act like we're not owned. So in verse 4, when he says, you walk after the Lord and fear Him, keep His commandments, obey His voice, and serve Him and hold fast to Him, I get it. Because either I'm going to listen to somebody that tells me what I want to hear, and there will always be somebody out there, usually at a fee, that will tell you what you want to hear. The question is, is it line up with God's Word or not? Who am I going to walk after, the Lord or this person? Who am I going to revere, this guy who does these miracles or my God who created the universe? Whose commandments am I going to guard and keep clear? This guy who tells me to do new things or God's word that is unchanging? Whose voice am I going to obey? Am I going to listen to this guy who says, you need to, or the Lord who says, kill this guy? Who am I going to serve? Because in the end of it all, I'm going to serve one or the other. And who am I going to cling to? Now today, God's not telling us, obviously, we're not living in the theocratic government that God ordained here, but it doesn't remove how sincere and how serious this issue is. Is there somebody that we're listening to when we're like, oh, he's a little bit off. The focus really isn't on the Lord. The focus is kind of, hey, listen, let me warn you. The focus could be on the Holy Spirit and not be the Holy Spirit. The focus could be on a denomination or a non-denomination or a quote-unquote ministry. Or on a guy that it's, you know, because his name is like blah, 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 power hour. And at the end of it all, I really didn't get to know Jesus better, but I feel like I know this guy real well. And God goes, I, listen, here's the bottom line. God wants no competition. I mean, nobody possibly could compare to him. But that doesn't mean we're not given over to making stupid choices. So verse 5, he tells us then that the prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he's spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord. That's his agenda. And he says, let me tell you, can I remind you who I am? I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
I'm the one who bought you out. I brought you out and I bought you out of the house of bondage. And this guy wants to entice you and take you away from me. I'm not into it at all. Wouldn't you question my sincerity if there were people who their whole purpose in life was to pull me away from my wife and I hung out with them? I'd say, well, I don't listen to everything they say, but they have some nice things to say. Wouldn't you question my sincerity of my love for my wife? Well, that's the point here. Nothing is more important to him. So listen. Because I think we give the enemy credit in all kinds of wonky places. Please hear me with your heart. There's no greater enemy. And I'll say that again. There is no greater enemy in your life than anyone who will seek to turn you away from God. We think, oh, I don't know, the enemy. And this is what we usually, oh, he's, he's trying to destroy my health. Oh, Satan came in and he gave me a cold last night. Like that's what he really wants to do? You know what happens when I get unhealthy? I become weak before God. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when Paul was made ill, he cried out to the Lord three different times. And the Lord said, hey, 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 my grace is sufficient for you because my strength is made perfect in your weakness or in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will gladly boast in my infirmities and in the, that the power of Christ might rest in me or upon me. Therefore, I'll even take pleasure in my infirmities and in reproaches and needs and in persecutions and distress for Christ's sake. Because when I am weak, well, then I'm really strong. You really think that the enemy really wants you to be strong in Christ by making you weak in the flesh? Oh, yeah, that's the one thing he's going after right now. Or do you think it's maybe that he destroys our comforts? Yeah, you know what? That's why I missed that bus. Because Satan stepped in. And he made sure that that bus driver stepped on the accelerator so much that I got there and watched it drive by. I think, hmm. When my comforts are destroyed at the moment, whatever they are, whether that's just my familiarities around me, whether it's the things that I think I know that sort of fall apart around me, I realize that those kind of things only make me see God's comfort because the other comforts are failing me at this moment. And I realize 2 Corinthians, again, this time chapter 1, verse 3. And don't miss this verse because it's so misused or misheard. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us, hear me, in all our tribulation, in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort in which we ourselves are comforted by God. Listen to it again. This God of all comfort comforts us in all our tribulation or troubles that we may be able to comfort those who are in any, any trouble. The way people normally read this is that we have trouble in some specific area, God gives us comfort, and now we're equipped to comfort people of that same tribulation. But that's not what this says. That's not any. That's that specific one. There are certain things I will never experience on earth that other people will. I would, in my flesh, disqualify myself from serving them because I'm like, I I don't know if I can understand that. But the point is, I am not the comforter. I am the administrator or the minister of that comfort. I may not, 
I'll never have a miscarriage. That would be weird. But I know the comfort of the comforter. And I know how to bring you to him. I may never see the death of a child that bears my surname. But I know the one who brings comfort. And I know the one who watched his own son die. And I'm here to tell you that if you think that the enemy is just trying to muck with your comfort, make you sick, you're missing the point. Maybe he's just trying to destroy my friendships. And then it forces me to find the one friend that stays closer to a brother, says Proverbs 18.24. You go, but I'll just be all alone. And God goes, hello, didn't I die to be with you? But if the enemy really could have his way, he would destroy your intimacy with God. That's what he wants. That's why he's the accuser. And that's why he is the tempter. That no matter what that trial is, he accuses as an opportunity to accuse God to you or you to God. Or someone else to you or you to someone else. Whatever that inconvenience is. Whatever that thing that strains a relationship. And oh, all I can do is blab. I get why Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, don't fear the one who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. I'd rather fear him who was able to destroy both body and soul or soul and body in hell. Because there's nothing more important to him because that's what he wants is you. So hear me on this. This week I've had a lot of time to pray about this. The challenges that beset us. It seems to me that the tactic is always the same. Distraction, diversion, replacement. That's what we see here with this, with this false prophet. Distraction, diversion, replacement. Distraction, they do some kind of miracle type thing. And as they do some kind of miracle, it distracts me from the power of God. Not that all miracles aren't of God. I should say, well, not all miracles are of God, but not that all miracles aren't of God. But it changes my attention. Then it diverts me and it changes my direction. And then ultimately it changes my destination by replacing. So let me tell you how this kind of plays out. The great prayer time. I know that what God has called me to is a great prayer time. Time to be alone. That it should be a dialogue. But here's the problem. I can't seem to focus. Because the moment I get quiet, I think of Facebook and emails and tweets and pins. And I get absorbed in news and information. And all of a sudden, I start going, you know, I'm like there and I'm like, Lord, I'm going to pray. And then... It doesn't really matter when I'm going to pray. Someone's going to call. Now, I'm not telling you you're of Satan because you're calling me. And you'll think, but wait a minute. And as you start to pray, your mind goes in a thousand different directions because we are now raised in a place where we can't even walk, look at the same thing for three seconds according to the television. They have to change the scenery every three seconds to keep your interest. Every three seconds. And we wonder why we have ADD. What? And all of a sudden, I go from that to realizing, well, you know what? I could probably, I'll just kind of throw out a quick prayer and I'll spend more time on the internet. 
And I've replaced my prayer time. God's Word. I know what it's like to be in God's Word and just feel like the heavens have parted and God has spoken right into my heart. But then sometimes I get really busy, right? And when I get busy, the busyness of life could cause me to sleep late and I don't get that time like I did before. Now I'm chasing my diary. And all of a sudden that busyness makes it at a place where I'm trying to read, but I'm trying to read quick and I'm trying to like drive through and get the power of God. Or before I got alone and everything else was away. And I can always blame it on things legitimate because there is an urgency in the world that always is going to be a tyrant to me. There will always be something that seems so pressing. And, you know, I'll hear it. I'll hear it from people I love. It's like, we've got to do this and we've got to do it now. Now is the time. And I listen to this and I go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got to stop this for a second. And I go, wait a minute. I can't do something now if I'm not praying first. If I'm not listening to the voice of God, what I do now will be a destruction. And that can't be the way it should be. I listen to this and I think, where's my time in the Word? I'm like, where's the power of God in this? And God's like, I want the power in my Word to be with somebody who's still with me because the point is in my intimacy. My Word's just a vehicle. By the time I'm done, you know what that's like. You turn on the telly because now the day's so busy, I just need to veg, right? I just need to veg because I don't even have the brain power to understand anything. Day's been a little bit crazy now. You don't know what I experienced out in this day, the people I've encountered in the weird situations. So at this point now, I'm just going to zone out where the Word could be feeding me and strengthening me. Now I'm going to stare. And you know, you, talk, you get onto YouTube and it's like, like, it's like Ikea. You walk in the building and like 12 hours passed and you just walk in and out the doors. And then like, how, all of a sudden, how is it midnight? And I don't have time for God's word like that. My attention got diverted. So I got distracted. And then my direction got diverted and then I replaced it. Good fellowship. Oh, we're in a place and we're just loving it and feeling so good. But somebody said something and, and we expect every other Christian to be perfect. And they see something and it sounded kind of like it was in the flesh and I'm sure it was meant towards me. And now I feel like an outcast and it's all about me and nobody cares and nobody knows, nobody knows my name. And if I disappeared, no one would know it. And all of a sudden my attention got, the, you know, got distracted by this thing that was said. And then after it got distracted, I got diverted and I started thinking, you know what, that's probably the case. And I started entertaining that in my head and that changes my direction. And then all of a sudden I replace it. Forget it. I'll hang out with people who hate a church because at least they won't talk bad about me. And then when they do talk bad about you, you expect it at least. And you feel like that's somehow validated. And then I have romance with God. And I wonder why it's my suffering. And how can I have a great romance with God when my eyes are seeking everything but Him? And my heart's closed to Him now because I think some other person misrepresented Him and somehow that was God. And I'm like not having a good time in prayer and that must be God's fault. And I'm not having a good time in His Word and that must be God's fault because God's Word must have failed. And why isn't God speaking to me when I give Him those 25 seconds? And I mean, granted, I happen to have my earphones in, and I'm sure it's going to be over someone else singing to me at that moment, but God still got to speak to me. And I wonder why it is in all of this that, that it's because God told me that's the way it is. All of my heart means all of my heart. 
All of my emotions mean all of my emotions. All of my appetites mean all of my appetites. And I look at this and I think, well, but that person's charming and they're cute. Well, they don't seem to love the Lord like that, but they caught my eye. And now that they caught my eye, now we're only friends. And I hear this so much. Oh, it's like a ministry. Don't worry, I'm going to bring them to the Lord. Oh, you know, it's nothing serious. It's serious because you're flirting with something you shouldn't be flirting with. That's like you bring in a rattlesnake and you're like, don't worry, it's not serious. We're only friends. Like it's serious because that thing's going to bite you. Oh, yeah, but it's a cute rattlesnake. I don't care how cute the rattlesnake is. It'll still bite you. Oh, this one won't bite me. I know every other rattlesnake bites, but this one's different. Oh, so you're that deluded now, are you? It's very serious because you're living in a delusion. And then you get in this relationship, and you know it's an unsafe relationship, and you're like, how did I get in this? And it's like, because everybody that said don't, you didn't listen to. Can I just warn you? The word anti means against or instead of. So when we read Antichrist, it's not just against Christ, it's instead of Christ. My question to me, is there anything Antichrist in my life right now? Am I really loving God with all my emotions? Am I really loving God with all my appetites? Or am I somehow playing this game to think this thing's going to work out? But I'm not willing to submit these things? Distraction. Well, what is it going to take for me to get right? I'll tell you what it's going to take. I need to pray for God to, to commandeer my focus so that I could stop listening to people who, get, who talk nonsense. Though my spirit may, or my flesh may crave it to validate my sin, I don't want to be like that anymore. I want my gaze to be captivated by Christ. I don't want to be diverted anymore. I don't want to be walking this crazy line like this. I want to walk that straight shot to the Lord and, and be walking with Him. And then the word John would tell us, John the Baptist, when he says, I make a straight way to the Lord. And I realize, man, I, I, I need a straight way. Not a way that's like half my ambition, half what other people say, and half something else. And that's cool. And oh, who cares what that pastor says? And oh, I know that's kind of what Scripture says. But I'm sure that it doesn't really mean exactly what it says. The rest of the chapter picks up but I don't want my life distracted. I wouldn't want to be out on a date with my wife and not be with her because I'm distracted by, and it could be things that are valid things, bills, problems, people. And it's like, why are we even here doing this? We should just be at home not spending money while we're busy somewhere else. I think how many times God must say that to me. Why are we even doing this? so full of everything but me right now and I know that things are and you've you've given yourself a reason because you've looked for a reason but that doesn't make it right and brothers I gotta tell you sisters I gotta tell you that's the human condition God knows it but I need you to know God's not like that he's not distracted he's not diverted he's not replacing us with someone else he is absolutely consumed David would say that your thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore for me. No matter where I go, you're there. When I wake up, you're there. When I go to sleep, you're there. When I walk someplace, you're there. When I get up, you're there. When I sit down, you're there. Can't get anywhere, man. If I ran to hell, you'd still be there because you are not leaving me alone. You are the greatest, most wonderful stalker that ever existed. Everything else must be second best. And if anything's in competition and you think Jesus plus, man, you are not getting the right Jesus. So listen, 6 to 11, 
This is how serious it gets. The brother, sister, son of your mother, that's, you know, brother, son of your daughter, your son of your daughter, your wife, of your bosom, the friend of your own soul. Is there anybody? Look at most of you here are single, and that's the safest place to throw at me now before you make those choices. It's like these people die. And the reason is, because nothing is more important. Now, God's not telling you kill your wife, gentlemen. Ladies, he doesn't tell you kill your husband. He's saying there should be nobody who has influence in your life to pull you away from me. That's what God's saying. Amos 3, 3 says, can two walk together unless they agree? Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, you can't serve two masters. You're going to serve, you're going to love one and hate the other. Loyal to one and despise the other. You can't chase both sides and think you're loving both sides. It doesn't work that way. It tells us to be friends with the world is to be an enemy of God, James 4, 4. And I look at that and I think, is there anyone right now I'm unequally yoked to? Somebody where they're kind of like, well, you know. Now, I'm not talking about somebody that I'm seeking to minister to, but my heart is well guarded. I'm talking about that person that I've, I've, I've allowed to have the influence in my life. Though, you know what? And here's the funny thing. In the world we live right now, most of the people who have influence, we've never even met. There's somebody on a YouTube channel. There's somebody that like throws out pins. There's somebody that's like on a television station. And it's like we think it's a reality because it's a reality program. And like they have influence and they don't even know our name. We think, but it must be true because it's on the Internet. It must be true because this guy said it must be true because it's on the news. Yeah, good luck with that. He goes, look at whatever it is. I don't want it to have any influence in your life at all. Any influence. Because I want my walk with you to be number one. If you're single, that should be the hottest ticket for you. If somebody is not as, I I would say both people should be convinced that the other person's radically more in love with Jesus than they are and they're okay with the Lord at that moment. That they could spur each other on to that greatness in Christ. The last verses are about a city. Do you know what it says in Psalm 917? It says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Do you know how serious that is? Do you know there are more verses on hell than there are on heaven? God gives us more clarity on how horrible that place is. You think, how could a loving God create such a horrible place? And I'd say, how can a reasonable human being choose it? A loving God stuck himself in the way and said, you're going to have to come over my dead body to get there, and I'm going to rise up while you're stepping over me. And what they say is, notice in verse 13, corrupt men have come up from among you and enticed. That's past tense. Do you know what that means? The city at this point has now given themselves over. Because I don't care what city that is. That city is not to have influence over you anymore. You make careful inquiry. You do thorough searching. You diligently ask. And then he calls it an abomination. The word is eba. It literally means something disgusting that makes you want to vomit. And God says, nothing is more disgusting to me than somebody interfering with my relationship with you. Nothing should bother my wife more than in, in regards to our relationship than somebody trying to interfere with my relationship with her. You say, well, this thing makes them a little weaker or this thing kind of, you know, makes them this way or that way. But the bottom line is the one thing that should be of greatest concern to her would be what interferes with my relationship with her and vice versa. But this city isn't even to be a memory. 
It's only to be a warning. And he does tell us this, by the way. It doesn't matter what it is. None of it's left. You don't take its stuff and, and spoil it. Because if that were the case, think about it. You could trump a charge like this, take over a city to take their stuff. He says, you burn all of their stuff. You turn the whole thing into a big mound. You know why you turn it into a mound? Because six, seven different times in the book of Judges alone, there are piles of rocks or Joshua, I'm sorry, that are piles of rocks. There are mounds that are left. So people go, what's that? And they say, that was a city that turned their back on God. That was a testimony of what happens when you run from God. And so when you walk by that, you're like, whoa. And understand what God is doing here is it's preventative maintenance. The idea of it is if this comes to it, if this hammer comes down hard, it doesn't happen again. That's the point here. Because what God wants more than anything else, if I haven't said it enough, is you. By the time it's done, it says, listen, verse 17, none of the things in that city are considered anything but cursed. There are cursed things, they shall, they shall, none of those things will remain in your hand. The Lord may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy, have compassion on you and multiply you. I realize what God really wants is to bless me. He wants me to never experience his fierce anger but he wants to shower me in mercy. He wants to cover me in compassion. He wants to multiply me, but but he will not do that to me without him. And I get it. I've been guilty of caving into my own children at my own regret. Things that they've wanted that I've offered to them or I've said, okay, because I'm tired of fighting all the time, but it is always going to be a fight. Because all I really want is to be with them. And I know what it's like to sit around the table while everyone's staring at a phone. I know what it's like to sit in a house that feels vacant because everyone's in their own place. But every time that happens, I always turn to the Lord and say, Lord, do I do this to you? Do I do this where you're just here and I'm kind of going about life as if you're not here? I didn't have children to not be with her. I didn't have a wife to not enjoy her. I think the Lord, it's so crazy that the perfect, amazing God is so desperate for us. Like somehow we think we found something better. What in the world am I thinking? My God so loved me and you that he sent Jesus to die on a cross. That's no fairy tale. That's reality. And he was bludgeoned, whipped, tortured. And the only thing that kept him there, according to the joy set before him, was me and you. It was the image that somehow following through on this would make me his. I didn't have to pay that for my wife. I didn't have to pay that for my children. I didn't. I fasted a few times. You know, you pay the doctor's bills or the adoption bills or whatever, but it's a very small price to pay. But I didn't suffer like that. But I can't even imagine suffering one one millionth of that. And then having people that just claim me for benefits. And that's it. 
just give me, give me. I have no interest in relationship with you. And you know what we can do? We can invent enough reasons that we feel like it's valid to be that selfish. And valid to be that self-consumed to the person who gave everything to be with us. But my Jesus died on the cross because he would rather die than live without me. And when he rose again, he offered me a new life. But that new life was one where he's the Lord in it. Where he actually is my love. He proved his side. And I want to say yes now on mine. Because look at what are you playing with? What are you listening to? Hey, maybe that false prophet isn't wearing a robe and jumping up at church. Here, we would drive him out. Maybe he's just in your headphones. Maybe he's just on your 13-inch screen. But he's saying, follow another God. Am I still willing to cut that off? Or do I not love him like I think I do? Because those moments are going to prove it. Am I willing when somebody says they're really close to me, but they are so bent on pursuing something other than the Lord at the Lord's expense, will I lead or follow? follow. I don't love him like I think I do. And am I willing when I come into a city like this, which I consider my city too now, by the way. I'm willing to say, well, but that's just the social standard. But God's his opposite. Who do I listen to? Who do I follow? Who do I obey then? I'm not talking about breaking the law. Unless, of course, the law demands that I break God's. The question is, can I really love him like this? And the answer is no. Not in of my own strength. And there are moments like this where, to be honest, it's surgery time. And here's, here's my prayer. If you've not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the very command, by the way, that begins the relationship, that accepting the gift that Christ paid on the cross and His resurrection to be your Lord and Savior in life and love, I'm going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. But first, I want to go after the believers here, and myself included. Maybe there hasn't been a time in a, in a while where you've gotten quiet, and I'll tell you what the difference has been for me. I had the privilege of being able to go to Israel this year after many years. And I get to Galilee, and when I get to Galilee, I get real quiet with the Lord. And I'm like, all right, Lord, there's no headphones, there's no anything. I'm here, and I'm just saying, look it, I don't want to leave until I'm confident that we're good. I want to be like Joshua that doesn't just come in like Moses did, get his stuff and go out and tell people. I want to stare and just be captivated, and I don't want to leave here without you. Because it would be so senseless otherwise. And what I want to do is I want to give some time for quiet. And then we're going to pray. So out of respect, if you would be so kind, 
you just get quiet with me and let the Lord tell you if there's anything in competition, anything. Now, if it's like, well, when I'm married to somebody, it's like, well, then we arrange the way that you deal with that relationship. If it's my kids, well, then rearrange the way you deal with your kids. Put it in the place it needs to be in your heart. You don't, we don't follow here in that. We follow Christ. But whatever it is, can you imagine that if we really could love him with all of our emotions, we could love him with all of our appetites, what that would do? So let's get quiet and then we'll pray, okay? Stand as a Nehemiah amidst your people. And I want to confess to you, Lord, we are spiritually weak. So easily distracted. We're distracted by things that will never mean anything in life other than the way that they affect our walk with you in a bad way because we're giving it the time it, it gets. And I pray right now, Lord, for for our focus. What catches our eye? What captures our ear? These conversations and priorities and rants and raves and whatever, Lord, that so bidding for our love, for our emotions, for our appetites. I recognize, Lord, it's so much easier to steer me in a wrong direction if my head is turned. But Job said he made a covenant with his eyes that he would look on no unclean thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would own our focus. 
think of horses that used to bring water for fires and how they'd have to have blinders on their sides so that they couldn't see the fire or they wouldn't run to help. And all they could see then was the help they're bringing instead of the fire that's before them. And Lord, I just pray that that you would just keep us, Lord, from being so distracted. There's so much in this world that's so distracting and it's shiny and it's blinking and it's full of fake colors and our heads are just so easily turned. And I pray, God, that you would change that. Lord, as we turn then, even as you tell us about the the parable of the seed and sowers and soils, how weeds rise up and choke the good seed, keep it from bearing forth the fruit it should. You tell us it's like the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, I just pray right now for myself and our flock. God, I just pray that I would not succumb to things because they seem so urgent that I can't take time to seek you out first, to hear from you instead. Like I just have to bail instead of wake you up in the boat and say, what do we do? I just pray, Lord, that I would never think that just sitting quiet with you is being irresponsible. God, that I would not be diverted. That I would not be chasing after these breaks in the levee that only you can really patch up anyway. Because once I start on that road, I know that I'm going to be spending my whole life trying to lift things off of you instead of resting in your bosom where I belong. And you may call me to do things. You may call me to put my hand in the dike or whatever. But Lord, I know that when you tell me to do it, it works. And I don't get depleted and destroyed in the process, but rather I I find the rest that I need. And I pray, Lord, that for myself and for every person here, would really be a commitment to be faithful to you. That our appetites would be handed to you so that we're not chasing after those things where they can't even satisfy. It's a broken system, Lord, and I know it. Because, Lord, I know that if I would keep my focus, I would not feel the wind and let it guide me and say, well, my feelings tell me so it must be true. And I would not see the waves in such a way that I would think they're so big that I'm in peril when I can keep my eyes on you and stay above the whole thing. And I know that if I kept my eyes on you and my appetites on you, that I would never be replacing you like I'm so quick to do with things that I think are legitimate because somehow I have to get all this stuff done first so then I can try to get quiet with you, but it just never gets done. But Lord, I pray that whatever's influenced me to do that, that you change the way that I hear it from this point forward, that it no longer has that kind of influence in my life.
And God, that today I could sense the pleasure of a God that knows that even if I am not capable physically in my own strength of loving you with all of my emotions and appetites, that I want to enough that I would allow your Holy Spirit to do the work that he needs to do in my life so that I could live that kind of life. Lord, I, I don't want just to get peace because I feel like I'm in disarray or get rest because I feel like I'm disheveled. But Lord, whatever I want you to give me is because I want to take it and hand it to others. And not, I'm not the end of it, Lord. I'm not the, the, the depository, Lord. I'm the hose. And I, and I want to be able to say, Lord, give me more grace so that I can give it to other people. And give me more mercy so I can issue it to others. And, and Lord, I pray that, that my attitude would not be about me, but it would be on others. But first, you. God, I just pray that you would transform my heart to be one that really makes you who you belong on the throne of my heart where where you belong. And right now, if there be anyone in this room, Lord, that has yet to say yes to the gift you paid at the cross, I pray today you would really speak to them and, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, show them how essential, absolutely imperative this is. And if that's you right now, I'm just going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end of it all, if you agree, I ask you simply to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God, I, I am a sinner. I, I confess to you, I, I am a sinner. And you have punished my sin on the cross of Jesus. That's the point of it. So that I don't have to be punished because he volunteered for me. Nobody else did, just him. And as he died on the cross, my price was paid. In full. And as he rose again, you offered me a brand new life. One no longer owned by those appetites. But now set free to follow you and to be loved by you the way you deserve. To return that life. So Lord, may I receive that love. May I receive that payment. And allow you now the right to transform me and make me everything you intend to. You have me now. I'm yours. I confess Jesus is my Savior, my ransom payment, and my Lord. And may I live that resurrected life you you offer me. Father, I belong to you now in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.